1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 13. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have had to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside. God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. As we move to a time of the preaching of God's word, let me begin with a question. This is the audience participation part of our service. I'm going to ask a question, and I want you to respond by standing up if you think it's true. Who here is holy? If you're holy, please stand up. Who here is holy? It's a trick question, someone says. <laughs> All right, I see one, two, three, four people standing up. All right. Um, you can all be seated. Second question, similar to the first. Who here is righteous? Stand up if you are righteous. Similar numbers, maybe one or two more. All right, you may be seated. You see that there is some hesitancy here, some hesitation. Why is it that we hesitate to answer this question, am I holy or am I righteous? Is it because of our awareness of sin? I think most of us here would say that if we've gathered together as a church, that we are God's people, right? We are gathering together as God's people in order to worship Him. And yet, we are often more aware of our sin than we are aware of the reality that if we are God's people, we are holy. If we are God's people, we have been made righteous. It may be that we are, in a sense, in two minds about this because of our own awareness of our sin, because of our knowledge that we haven't yet arrived to glory and we're not perfect yet. That's true. But regardless of that, when we read the Bible, the way that the Bible talks about us as Christians the Bible doesn't describe God's people as those who are sinners who will one day be holy only, though that is true to some extent. The way the Bible talks about it is that we are holy people who've been made holy by Christ, made righteous through his blood, and who will still sin on the way to glory, but that should not characterize us generally. The Bible calls us saints, holy ones. Different from the Catholic Church, that isn't just some higher echelon of Christian that are in these 
categories of sainthood. No, the Bible calls all of us saints. First Corinthians chapter one in the first two verses says that we are called to be saints. We are holy ones. Those that have been devoted to a holy God. We are not sinners who will one day be holy. We are God's holy ones who've been made holy by Christ, are growing in holiness now, and who will one day be glorified and made completely holy in body and soul. The Bible teaches us that we are freed from the penalty of sin and that he has also freed us from the power of sin and that we've been freed to now walk in newness of life. And this holiness should characterize us in greater and greater degrees, both individually and corporately as well. The church is a holy people. Now, I tricked you a bit, but I I did it for a reason, not to embarrass you, but because I think if we look around 21st century America today, most churches do not exercise things like church discipline because we have an identity issue. We don't understand this very real identity that we are to be as God's people, holy, both individually and corporately. Listen to what Paul says in his book to the Cretans, uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says, verse 14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, And to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. That's who we are to be, friends. A holy people. If we have an identity issue when it comes to our holiness, and the next time a pastor asks you if you are holy, please do stand up. If we have an identity issue about the reality of the fact that we are in Christ as a Christian, holy, we will not strive for holiness personally. And we will not work for holiness corporately. That's, I think, what is often underneath the failure of churches to exercise church discipline. So who here is holy? All of us, Emmanuel Church. If we are believers, we are holy people, God says. And that means we need to act like it. That's what we'll be considering today from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In the letter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing to a young church that he planted. And in the last few months, we've studied the first four chapters of the book. And there we've seen Paul dealing with issues of a divided church, a church that was divided over its leaders. Paul now moves to deal with the second issue in the book here in chapter 5, that of sin in the church. So we're in the second of two sermons on the subject of church discipline in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you missed that first one, I think we have a recording of it that we'd be happy to share so you can get caught up to speed. Uh, Looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in the second half of the chapter this week, we'll be seeing from our passage, if you're taking notes, God's call to be who you are. God's call to be who you are. And that is holy. We are to be who we are, holy. In two points, point number one, verses six to eight, who you are, and point number two, verses nine to the end, verse 13, being who you are. So who you are, point one, being who you are, point number two, 
And I pray that the Lord would give us strength to be faithful as God's holy people representing Christ to the world. And that we would do this practically by taking our sins seriously and by dealing with our sin, both individually and corporately. So point number one, who you are. And quickly for context, bringing you up to speed in terms of where we were the last time, it was reported, verses 1 to 5, to Paul that there was a person in the Corinthian church, someone who was living as an active member of the church, calling himself a Christian, and yet entrenched in unrepentant sexual sin. And as if that wasn't bad enough, it is actually a scandalous sin. He is in an adulterous affair with his mother-in-law. Now, the situation is probably a well-to-do father who marries a much younger woman in his old age, and then the son, as, the, as, the, as the, the father ages, begins having an affair with this much younger woman. It's incest is the category, and Paul is shocked that the church is not dealing with this. We saw Paul quoting Leviticus 18 and 19, the holiness code, of how God's people are to be holy, and this includes their sexual lives as Christians, living lives that reflect something of God's faithfulness in his marriage of Christ and the church by the way that they conduct themselves, and that marriage is to be between one man and one woman for life, a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, a faithful picture. Paul says that such sin, this incest, is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. Now, this kind of sexual sin was beyond the limits of Corinth, which was an incredibly secular and licentious city. As we'll see coming up in chapter 6, Corinth was like the Las Vegas of its day, where almost nothing was off-limits sexually, but even the non-Christian Corinthians would have drawn the line here. But shockingly, Such a person is not only continuing in this sin, but it's public. He isn't embarrassed about it. He's happy for people to know about it. And even worse, the church isn't embarrassed by it either. The people are arrogant, Paul says in verse 2. And why are they proud? Because they're not responding to this sin with a godly response of grieving, verse 2. Or a response of putting this member out of the church, which is what he calls them to do in verses 4 and 5. For context, let me read verses 4 and 5 again. Paul tells them to do this. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We talked in the last sermon about the kind of love we're to have as Christians toward one another, and we described it as being a holy love. A love that is concerned with helping one another be truly holy more than merely happy. Did you hear that? A, a love that's a love that drives one another to be truly holy more than merely happy. The love of a Christian covenant community takes sin seriously because we take God and His holiness seriously. And someone calling themselves a Christian and yet living in unrepentant sin is someone who's living a lie. The Bible tells us that Christ is a loving shepherd who pursues his sheep, sometimes with a staff um, protecting us from danger, and sometimes with a rod disciplining us when we have gone astray. In this process, Jesus Christ 
is using the members of his church to accomplish his discipline. You see there that it's to be done in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who's doing this, not us. And in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Christ's discipline, not ours. In verse 5, we see then as well, for context, the purpose of church discipline, according to the last passage, is restorative, not merely punitive. It's restorative. That's the goal. He says so the purpose is so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. They are to remove someone from the fellowship of the church in order for this person to be so shocked by the position that they're in, being treated as a non-Christian, that they would repent of their sins and return to the fellowship of the church. The goal here is repentance and salvation. We'll talk a little more about what this means practically because he continues to talk about it in our passage. Paul now goes on in our passage to explain that there are more purposes to church discipline, not merely restoration, though that's one of the main goals. As he begins to explain in verse 6, which Ashley just read, and in the verses that follow, another goal for church discipline is so that the church would be purified. There's a purifying goal. So a restorative goal, as we saw last time, now we'll see there is a purifying goal here. Look again at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. Now he says here that the people are not only arrogant, as we saw in verse 2, now it says that they're boasting. Now how is it that they are boasting? We're not sure. Commentators have thrown out some options. It may be that they're impressed by their own tolerance. Maybe that they are proud of the fact that they are living in such perceived freedom in Christ. Or maybe it is that they're proud that this member is, is rich and is a member of their church. Someone who has a father-in-law who was able to marry a much younger wife and afford to do that may mean that he was well-to-do. And that may be another reason why they weren't dealing with his sin. But regardless of how it is that they're boasting, look at the warning here through this rhetorical question. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? You see, there's more danger. Um, there are more dangers when we don't deal with sin in the church as God calls us to. Here, it's the danger of sin spreading and growing. Leaven, as Nathan explains so clearly, is simply yeast, an ingredient in bread making. Did any of you get into bread making like we did during the pandemic? <laughs> Following these social media uh, fads. I remember driving around with my wife. There were yeast shortages trying to find grocery stores with yeast in them and then hoarding them and then sharing them with people. Because everyone was all of a sudden deciding to bake bread. We were learning the ancient art of making bread through YouTube, right? Now, we were learning that you only need to mix a little bit of yeast into a batch of dough and let it sit. And the yeast then grows and spreads through the whole lump on its own. This is a principle every person in the ancient Near East would have known because bread was a staple food, like rice in Asia. They would know that yeast, just put a little bit in there, will spread throughout the whole dough and cause the bread to rise. And you could continue with that yeast by just taking a bit of dough and bring it into the next one. It's just going to continue spreading. That's what yeast does. Now, while yeast and bread is good for bread making, the illustration of yeast growing and spreading quickly is also an illustration in Scripture for the nature of sin. Remember what Jesus says to warn his disciples, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. 
Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Now he takes this illustration that is good when it comes to bread. It's bad when it comes to sin. He warns them about the pridefulness, the self-righteousness, the concern with external performance, mere external righteousness that the Pharisees were caught up with. He says, beware of this. It's dangerous. Beware of their sin. It spreads like yeast. Paul here uses yeast to describe sin in the church. When it's tolerated, it spreads. When it isn't dealt with, like cancer, it grows to devastating effect. Friends, you see here that sin is dangerous. Sin is, da- sin is dangerous. It's dangerous for non-Christians. That's why we preach the gospel. Sin leads to death and brings the wrath of God. But do you see sin is dangerous as well? For Christians or for those that would call themselves Christians. We are in danger, as Nathan prayed so well for us in his prayer of confession. We are in danger of taking sin too lightly. We are in, in danger of thinking that sin will not have a great effect. Friends, it's not true. You see that here. Do you realize how dangerous sin is to your soul? And how important it is to be fighting it? As you think about your own fight with sin, I'd encourage you to spend some time reflecting on Romans chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul commands the Christians there that they are to be, by the Spirit, putting to death the works of the flesh, mortifying sin, killing sin, not tolerating it, not harboring it, but seeking to kill it. Some helpful books as you consider your own fight with sin, or perhaps even a book that you could read with a fellow church member. John Owen's little practical book, The Mortification of Sin, is a, an, basically an exposition of that passage in Romans 8. A wonderful quote from this. We must be ever killing sin, or it will be killing you. See, sin is um, of a nature that it grows, and sin wants... Uh, wants us to sin to the greatest extent and will lead us to death and even um, destruction. So friends, let me encourage you to consider this or another one by Thomas Brooks. These are helpful Puritan paperbacks. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices by Thomas Brooks. I have two copies of these up here. I'm happy to give these away at the end. One of each. But Thomas Brooks talks about how it is that Satan, like an angler with a fish seeks to present the bait of sin and hide the hook, um, explains how Satan tries to convince us to sin by doing things like painting sin with virtue's colors. This is so helpful in helping us understand how it is that we might be tempted and helping us to realize just how dangerous sin is. But do you notice that sin is not only dangerous for us personally it is dangerous for the the corporate community as well that's paul's concern he is concerned for this man and so he he tells this church to excommunicate this person removing them from fellowship because he's concerned not only with this man and his sin and his state before god he's also then concerned with the whole community see sin spreads and it's the nature of sin to spread within a community i'm sure we all remember early days of COVID, our fear of contagion, our awareness of germs, of viruses, of transmissions. We all became OCD together with masks and social distancing and quarantining. 
We're very aware of the spread of viruses, but do you see Paul's concern here is we should be that kind of OCD and that kind of aware about our sin and realizing that our sin can affect and infect others too. It can actually lead others to think that their sin isn't so bad. We often think of sin being merely private or secret sin. As long as it's secret, not having an effect. Thinking, oh, it won't hurt anyone. It's secret. I can hide it. It won't have an effect on other areas of my life or on other people. Friends, it's not true. This passage tells us that. I watched a documentary recently that talked about a, a church that had scandal. But it talked about the culture in the church was one that began in the staff of a a staff that were living increasingly worldly and licentious lives, and it began to spread through the staff and eventually through the whole church as well. That's the nature of sin. It is the nature of sin to spread. It is important for us, as Paul commands here, to clean out the old leaven, verse 6, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. Friends, a church exercising church discipline is a measure of protection for the church as a whole. And it ensures that the church as a whole continues to take sin seriously and continues to strive together for holiness. Look at the, the command here in verses 7 and 8. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. That's where I get that line, being who you are. Well, who are we? Well, we are to be a holy people. Now, Paul here is using the images of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and of the Passover from Exodus 12, which Nathan read for us earlier in the service. Now, there we had the explanation of Passover. This was the, the actual redemptive event in which God rescued Israel from Egypt. And he did this through bringing these, these um, ten, what do we call them? Um, the ten plagues on the nation of Israel. And the final plague was the plague of, of killing the sons, the firstborn sons of each of the families of Egypt. And in order to be saved from God's wrath, they were then to kill a lamb, to slaughter it, and to take the blood and sprinkle it on their doorposts as, as a sacrifice for the sinners who were within the house. Well, they were also to be eating unleavened bread because... He was saying, my redemption is going to come quickly. You need to be ready for it. We don't have time for yeast to do its thing. Eat unleavened bread to to be ready to go as soon as possible. Well, then God established this memorial, that of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, in which every year for a whole week, God's people were to eat unleavened bread as a reminder of the redemption that God had, had accomplished for them. And the way that they were to do that was literally by cleaning out the entire house Before that week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because it is the nature of yeast to do what? To spread and to grow. If there's just a little bit of yeast left on your baking countertop, it's going to get into your bread. And you're now not going to have unleavened bread, but you're going to have regular bread. And that's what should not happen. So Paul then uses an illustration of what God's people would have known about this annual practice of cleaning out the whole house, getting that yeast out of the house, somewhere else outside of the house. So that they could be eating unleavened bread as God's people. Because they were to be reminding themselves of his redemption. He says that we're to do this as a church, is what he tells the Corinthians. 
They are, as a church, to be cleaning house, removing unrepentant sinners. Now, why is it that they're to do this? Well, first of all, it's because this is who they are. They are a holy people. Removing an unholy person should be obvious to them. But how is it that they are made a holy people? We'll look at the the line there at the end of verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Friends, this is how it is that we are holy. We hesitated to answer the question, am I holy at the beginning? I think often we think, well, in in and of myself, I'm not holy. I'm not holy with my own holiness. And that's true. How is it that we're made holy? Well, it's because of what Christ has done and what Christ has accomplished. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Friends, this is how it is that we are saved. Friends, our our only hope for salvation is not in ourselves or what we can accomplish, but what Christ has done for us. All of us are, are sinners. The Bible tells us that we have sinned against the Holy God, that we have rightly deserved his wrath, rejection by him, separation from him forever. And yet the Bible tells us that God had a plan from the beginning to send his son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to come and to be a child born to die, to lay down his life as a sacrifice on the cross, as that lamb, as we heard last week from Pastor John Lee, As that lamb who would die as a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. That once and for all sacrifice in the place of sinners, of any that would turn from their sin and trust in Christ. If we put our faith in Christ, his blood shed pays for our sins. And his righteousness is applied to us. And we are then made through him. Children of God, we are then made perfectly righteous through his record of perfection and his sacrificial death on the cross. Friends, indeed, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Indeed, as we said earlier, it is finished upon that cross. What Christ has accomplished has accomplished your salvation if you have turned from your sins and trusted in Christ. If you haven't, friends, let me encourage you to do this today. Today can be for you a day of salvation. There is in Christ full redemption for any sinner that would turn and trust in him. For those of us who have put our faith in Christ, that Passover lamb has taken the wrath of God for us. And he has made us now his holy people. C.S. Lewis uses this illustration of what this means for us. He thinks of it in individual terms. This is one of my favorite Lewis quotes. Imagine yourself as a, a house. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts terribly and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. You see, friends, God, when he saves us, hasn't simply 
saved us just as we are in order to leave us as we are. No, he saved us in order to make us new. And he's saved us to make us holy positionally, but then also to make us holy actually by being at work in us and growing us to look more and more like Christ with each passing day. The biblical category here is that of sanctification, being made holy. And the work that God is doing in making us holy, making us look more like Christ, happens both individually, but it happens corporately as well. See what verse 7 says. You are to be cleaning out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. You see, we are holy. That's what it says. You are an unleavened batch. Therefore, he's telling them they must act like it. But in order to act like it, we must understand who we are. We are God's holy people. Now, he then leans in again with another call for them to obey this command to remove this sinner in our second part. So that's point number one, who we are. Now, point number two, being who we are. Point number two, being who we are. And this is verses nine to the end. Let me read this again for us. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I didn't mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside. God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. And Paul here is laying down two different criteria for how it is that we are to treat different kinds of people as Christians. And he says that we are to be treating those who are outside of the church in one way and those that are inside the church in another we are, as Christians, to be treating those who are outside of the church with compassion, with love, with mercy. We are to be treating them with a kind of love that would hopefully draw them to wanting to respond to our message. Paul says here in verse 9, we are going to have to be associating with people in this world who live immoral lives. And we shouldn't be surprised by it. Now, often, churches will get this wrong. Often, there's dangers here, that of a church becoming a judgmental church, who spends all of its time looking down its nose at the people in this world and can't believe how terrible the people out there are. Now, Paul here isn't surprised by it. We are not to be like the Pharisees, looking down at the wicked of this world. Being a judgmental church, proud of ourselves that we're not like those outsiders. That's like that leaven of the Pharisees that Jesus warned his disciples of. He says that you're actually not to be treating the people of this world as if they know better. In many ways, they don't. And it's our call as Christians to have compassion on them and to seek to save them. Friends, this means that we are to have relationships with those who are not believers in order to evangelize them. Are there people in your life, friends, that you are interacting with in order to try to be a gospel witness to? Sometimes we as Christians are concerned with our, with our kids 
being affected by the sinners of this world, that we want to, as Christians, build a kind of subculture where we're going to keep everybody safe and we're going to keep the world out, out there, and we're going to create a kind of utopia in this world, as if it's our job as Christians to create the, the eternal state in our own bubble today. Friends, that's not what we're called to do. Jesus says in John 17 that we're to be in the world, we're to live in the world, and yet not be of it. What that means is, Paul says here, verse 10, we are not to go outside of the world, we're to live in it, but we're not to be characterized by it. We're to be representatives of heaven here on earth. We're to be those that represent Christ to a world in need of salvation. Friends, let me encourage us as Christians to be developing the kind of culture as a church where we are excited to meet non-Christians. Rather than being afraid of them infecting us, we're excited for opportunities to share Christ with those who do not yet know him. Friends, let me encourage you to be praying for the non-Christians in your life, looking for opportunities to share Christ with them. Praying for opportunities, for divine appointments that God would give you, where you'd be able to share Christ. And then when God presents them to you, don't shy away from that fear or awkwardness, but pursue such opportunities. Hopefully we'll have opportunities to pray for some evangelism opportunities for us as a church in our evening service later on. But friends, you see here, first of all, we are not to be a judgmental church when it comes to the world. And the reason is, you look there at the end, it's not our job. It's God's job to judge those in the world. Look at verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge outsiders? It's a rhetorical question. But what, what does he mean by that? It's not your job to judge outsiders, those that are out in the world. It's God's job. But the other danger is not simply a danger of a judgmental church on one side. On the other side is the danger of a sin-filled church. A judgmental church misunderstands our purpose. We're not here to judge the world. But a sin-filled church misunderstands who it is that we're to represent. We would become a worldly church. These are real concerns. Christians who tolerate sin in the church will become a worldly church. And I think every church is going to fall into these traps at different times in the life of that church. I heard H.P. Charles say this week, sometimes churches will lean over to reach the world and then be in danger of falling in. There's always a temptation there. On the one hand of wanting to be merciful to those in the world, but on the other hand, not taking sin seriously. We must be careful to not be either. To be a holy people who have compassion on the lost, and yet who call those within the church to true holiness. Friends, as we think about what this looks like for us as a church, it means on the one hand that we need to be concerned with helping each of us grow in holiness. We talked last time about the categories of both formative discipline as a church and also corrective discipline. Formative discipline is kind of like boot camp where you are being um, disciplined to grow and to mature, the kind of discipline of education or tutoring. We are to be, as a church, focused on helping all of us grow in holiness and growing to look more like Christ. We're not only to be following Christ ourselves, but helping others follow Jesus too. But at times, when that formative discipline fails, we will need to be willing to pursue corrective discipline, that of calling a person who calls themselves a Christian 
and yet is living an unrepentant life to repentance, and when they will not listen, be willing to even remove fellowship from them. Now, as we think about what this looks like, here's a a helpful quote I read this week. A loving father does not discipline the kids down the street because they're not his. A father disciplines his own children. Likewise, the discipline of our Heavenly Father begins at his own household with his own children, the church. He's reserving for the wicked an ultimate final judgment that his children will never experience. Scripture makes a distinction between God's purifying discipline of the church and his ultimate condemnation of the wicked. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with this world. Friends, we are to be willing to pursue a loving church discipline. Look at what this looks like practically. I want to think for a couple minutes of what it looks like practically if In the days ahead, we need to do this as a church. We need to be prepared to know what to expect. He says here, verse 11, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a one. And then he says, verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Move the evil person from the mind. And what does this look like practically? Well, practically what it means is that we would take someone who is giving themselves over to unrepentant sin. At some point, we would need to make the call as a church to remove them from church membership and to remove formal fellowship with them as a church member. This is the same thing that Jesus talks about in Matthew 18. He says you should treat this one now as a tax collector or a sinner or a Gentile, someone who is now an outsider. Now this doesn't mean that we won't love that person, care for them, pray for them, or invite them to church. In fact, we would love for them to continue to come to church. We want them to be under the preaching of God's word. We're not going to bar the door and say you're not allowed in. No, we're going to want them to be coming as we would invite non-Christians to church to come and be under the preaching of God's word. We're going to want them to know that we love them, that we're praying for them, that we're concerned for them. But it says here we're not to be eating meals with them. And I think that means at least we're not to be allowing them to, to take the Lord's Supper. We would ask them to refrain from that. We are telling them the way you're acting is not characteristic of a family member of God. And so we're not going to treat you like a family member. That doesn't mean we don't love you. And in doing this, our hope is restorative, as we talked about earlier. What this would look like practically is that we would talk about this openly in a a members meeting of the church. This is one of the reasons we do members meetings. It wouldn't make sense for us to talk about an individual case in a, a, a gathering like this, which is public and includes both Christians and non-Christians. We would do these in members meetings. Friends, this is why members meetings are so important for us as members at Emmanuel. Let me encourage you to prioritize our, our members meetings. These are when we are able to, to do things like obey these kinds of commands and being concerned with caring for the body of Christ. It is loving for us to be willing as a whole congregation to do hard things, to exercise tough love and caring for, for God's children. And it may mean then being willing to do the awkward thing of saying no to invitations to fellowship from someone that we've removed from church membership. 
Friends, we must, in this way, have a strong backbone because of our love for God and a concern for Him, for His reputation in the world. When it comes to church discipline, the greatest concern here isn't our own comfort or comfortability in relationships, but a concern with Christ's reputation in the world. When it comes to church discipline, some people will hear what it is that we're called to do as Christians when it comes to church discipline, and on the one hand, think that it sounds very unloving. Well, if we are faithful in exercising loving church discipline, we may be accused of such things. It doesn't mean it's true. Our concern in church discipline is Christ's reputation in our community. And in a, a season of our culture, post Me too. Even the world understands that abusers and sinners who have sinned in great ways must be dealt with in some way. The world may be confused about how to deal with them. But we understand that sin and tolerating sin, protecting sinners, or even harboring them is wrong and harmful and leads to other people being harmed too. Friends, you see here that church discipline is a way that we can deal with sinners in a loving manner as God has designed and can protect the reputation of Christ in our church. As we think about what this means for us as a church, we must be willing to exercise church discipline corporately. We must be willing also to do all of the other steps before it comes to some great corporate action of excommunication so that we're ready for such great actions in the future. So friends, I wonder, are you aware of your own heart? Are you aware, as the hymn puts it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Are we aware of the, own, of the wanderings in our own hearts? I wonder, do you have people in your life who will love you enough to tell you when you're wrong? Who are willing to tell you when you're in danger. I wonder, do you even want that? You want to have the kinds of people in your life who will lovingly call you out when you're in sin? Or do you take steps to avoid being in those kinds of relationships? Friends, this is one of the reasons for church membership. This is why we join a church. The Bible calls us sheep. And as sheep, that means that we're prone to danger and we need protection. And the safest place for a sheep is in a local church, under loving shepherds, with fellow sheep in the protection of a, of a sheepfold. This is why we commit ourselves to a church covenant. We commit ourselves to some of these things that are right here, being willing to rebuke or to exhort or even to challenge fellow members who are in sin. Friends, let me encourage you, if you're here and you're not a member of a church, to pursue church membership and to find in a church a protection for yourself for the days ahead when you are prone to wander and perhaps may be in such a dangerous place you're giving yourself over to unrepentant sin. As we think about what this might mean for us as a church in the days ahead, the reality is if we're faithful as a church in exercising loving church discipline, we may face persecution in this world. We may be labeled as intolerant. We may be called bigots. We may be called narrow-minded. Our, our words calling people to lives of holiness may be even perceived as hate speech. 
If we're to persevere through such rejection by the people of this world, the judgment of God must loom larger to us than the mere judgment of men. And that's, at the end of the day, what church discipline allows us to do. To have a dress rehearsal for the final judgment day. And it shows mercy to those that are in unrepentant sin by giving them a chance to turn from their sin before they have to deal with the holy God. Each church, when it gets together in order to conduct church discipline, is in a sense a dress rehearsal for that final court scene. And it's more loving for people to realize what it is that they may face in the future by hearing from a human court acting in the name of Christ than to actually deal with the holy God. In light of that, friends, let me encourage us, each of us, to be doing the small things, the small preventative work that would keep us from needing to be dealt with in such a grand way. Do you go and get your annual physical? Do you go to the dentist every six months and do the preventative measures? Have your teeth cleaned? Uh, Do you floss on a daily basis? We should be the kinds of people that are willing to do the the daily, sometimes moment by moment or hourly work of guarding our own hearts and of being concerned with our own sin. We should be the kinds of people, friends, as a church that are like James tells his hearers in James chapter 5, those that are willing to confess our sins to one another. We want to have the kind of culture as a church that on the one hand takes God seriously, takes holiness seriously, But at the same time, we don't take ourselves that seriously because we know how dangerous it might be if we were to hide our own sin. Friends, let me encourage us as a church to create the kind of culture and be the kinds of Christians that if someone were to come to us and confess their sins, that we wouldn't be shocked and then ostracize them because they were honest about what's really going on. That we would be the kinds of people that deal with those that are in sin or struggling with sin with compassion and a willingness to help bear those burdens. We should be like those in Galatians 6 that bear one another's burdens, even the burden of sin and temptation, so that we can, each of us, help one another on this race home to heaven. Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish pastor, wrote the following on his perspective of church discipline. He says, when I first entered upon the work of ministry among you, I was exceedingly ignorant of the vast importance of church discipline. I thought that my great and almost only work as a pastor was to pray and to preach. I saw your souls to be so precious and the time so short that I devoted all of my time and all of my care and strength to labor in word and doctrine. When cases of discipline were brought to me and before the elders, I regarded them with something like hatred. It was a duty I shrank from. And I may truly say it nearly drove me from the work of the ministry among you altogether. Here's a young pastor who just wanted to preach and pray and was frustrated when he heard about people in his church who were in open and unrepentant sin. He didn't want to deal with it. But it pleased God, McShane writes, who teaches his servants in another way than man teaches to bless some of the cases of discipline to the manifest and undeniable conversion of the souls of those under our care. And from that hour, a new light broke in upon my mind, and I saw that if preaching be an ordinance of Christ, so is church discipline. I now feel very deeply persuaded that both are of God, that two keys are committed to us by Christ. The one, the key of doctrine, by means of which we unlock the treasures of the Bible, and the other, the key of discipline, 
by which we open or shut the way to the sealing ordinances of the faith. Both are Christ's gift, and neither is to be resigned without sin. I remember a, a member of my church in D.C., coming into church membership and sharing from the front that the reason he was now joining our church being baptized and then sharing with us the reason he had come to faith is because his previous church had excommunicated him out of love. He was living a life of unrepentant sin and his church loved him so much that they dealt with it and he didn't listen to them. So they put him out of the church. And it was church discipline that shocked him into realizing the kind of life he was living and eventually led to him coming to faith and then now living a life as a Christian, as, as a member of a church. You see, sometimes loving church discipline means people are shocked into realizing they're not true Christians at all. And it leads, can lead to their salvation. Friends, I pray that we would be able to do things like church discipline in hope knowing that if we're faithful to Christ and his commands, not just the commands we want to obey, but all of them, that he will accomplish his purposes of saving souls, of growing us to be more like him, using us as a light in this dark world. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we know that holiness among your people may look extreme. But we pray that it would be the norm for us as your people. Lord, we pray that we would be willing as your people to live lives of holiness individually, but also lives of holiness corporately. Lord, help us to be a people that can be a display of Christ to a watching world. Lord, empower us to represent him well. We pray that you would use us to build up this church and to make Christ known here in Orange County and beyond. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.